This morning we're going to be looking at the end of John's first epistle, so if you would take your copy of God's Word and if you would open it, some of you can turn on your copy of God's Word and scroll it, all right? But we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. This is the ending of this letter. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we're going to learn four, four lessons that Christians have assurance that they are saved. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 5, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask of God, and he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who has been born of God sins. But he who was begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We rightly lionize the champions of our faith. Scripture commands us in chapter 11 of Hebrews to sort of Consider now our race as Christians with an awareness that there are saints victorious in heaven looking down at us, and they are, in one sense, our examples of the race of faith that we run. Hebrews also commands us that we are to imitate those leaders who have preceded us and have finished. In this way, to have heroes with a courageous faith that we set before us and we imitate, it is, a, it is a biblical practice. It is good, it is not bad that we set men like John Bunyan, John Owen, John Gill, John MacArthur, John, you're not old enough yet, Randolph, but John Randolph. We set before us the kind of men that we would want to imitate You set before you the kind of women that you would rightly imitate their faith. But there is a frequent page in the history of the church and in the life of the Christian that Scripture also speaks very clearly to. Pastors minister frequently to. It doesn't receive the public side of the presentation of the Christian faith. But 
It's a real aspect to the Christian life and a necessary aspect of the church's ministry. And that is that real Christians in this present world sometimes wonder if they're saved. They wonder, am I right with God? Am I really a Christian? The saint, the true saint, will struggle with his or her assurance of salvation from time to time. Now, there's a number of reasons for this, and there are far too many for us to chronicle this morning. But we can understand certain reasons that there might be an increase in the doubts of a Christian's salvation. One of them is when a church is devoted to unbiblical practices. I'll just give two. John can clean up the mess. But if if you have a manner of evangelism that accents a decision that is based out of some kind of emotional manipulation and a message of the gospel that is sub-Christian, you're probably going to see those individuals to struggle with their assurance later on in their life. There are practices that churches can employ that will exacerbate the issue of, I wonder if I'm a Christian. But real Christians, even in very healthy churches, who are well taught, will from time to time struggle with assurance that they are safe in Christ, that they believe the gospel, that they have divine life living in them, for God has made them alive in Christ. And consequently, real Christians in this particular season in their life, they will need to be assured. Real Christians need to be assured that they are safe in Christ. They do know the truth. This is going to be especially clear and unfortunately uh, relatively dramatic when times of testing enter into this Christian's life or into the life of the church that these Christians will be in. When the truth of the gospel has been perverted and the people of God are confused, then there is going to be a more severe experience of doubt. Likewise, if we were even able to say if the church and and more of kind of a uh, institutional observation is weak or even infantile, when they encounter difficult times as a Christian or as a congregation, their infantile spiritual state will be manifest by an increase of doubt. This is why we should expect that many Christians today who are attracted to churches whose worship message and morality resembles more of a high school prom night than the people of God worshiping the triune God in faith of the crucified and resurrected Son, that when the culture shifts to be clearly opposed to biblical Christianity, that real Christians who are immature 
are going to go through quite a significant question about assurance of their salvation. Because now they're going to have to live cross-grain to their society. I think, therefore, we, that is your church, my church, the church in our, in our nation, needs to understand how do we assure Christians, real Christians, that they are safe in Christ, that they believe the gospel, the divine life is in them, that they have Christ and, therefore, eternal life. I think, in one sense, an epidemic, a real epidemic, of a spiritual nature is probably on the horizon. Hilt, you wanted some end times. There it is. And so we should be ready to assure real Christians of their true status. Now, it's really helpful that throughout church history, we are able to pick up the annuals of of our heroes and observe their pastoral care and even their own counsel to their own soul that in solid, biblical, healthy churches, real Christians wax wane, wax and wane about their confidence in Christ. And a book of the Bible, a whole book of the Bible, has been written with this exact purpose in mind. It's First John. First John was written to Christians who were encountering a particular circumstance where they were asking questions about, are we confident that we have the truth and that we are safe with God? I want to turn to you to the situation that John reveals to us that the original audience that he was writing to, some people think it was a single local church. It could have been a number of local church in the area around Ephesus, but In chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we read this. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. So who is the they? The Antichrists plural, not singular, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One And you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. See, This is the situation that the original local church or churches had encountered. They had members of their congregation. I presume that they were baptized publicly, professing their faith in Jesus as their Lord. They had been brought into the membership of the church, and now they had departed from that church. And they had parted from the gospel that had been preached to these very people that can make up the church. And they have departed thus from the church, from the church's message, and yet they are claiming that they actually understand it more truly. 
than those who remain. And maybe you can imagine what would these Christians, this local church, be asking if if that happened. I imagine some of you know exactly what they're asking. How do I know that I'm right? How do I know that I'm actually believing the truth? How do I know that I am saved and that they are not? John answers that question. He he made it very clear. How we are able to know that they are the antichrists and that they have never been of us is because they went out from us. But you, but you, you know the truth. So in chapter 5, starting in verse 15 through 21, John gives us his epilogue. This is the conclusion to this letter that was written to give assurance to real Christians who have gone through apostates leaving their congregation. And he he always points to two different categories of the Christian life. The two different categories that you look to as a Christian to be able to see the evidence of God's effective grace present and working in your life, though not perfect and not complete, is how do you behave and what do you believe? You and I, we look to these twin aspects of new life in Christ, and we, we ask ourselves, what, what do we believe? And how do we behave? Well, in the conclusion to his letter, John is going to give us four reasons that real Christians know that they are God's children, that they know that they are saved. And just to make this clear, I want to be able to set a category. None of these criteria are subjective. Robert Law writes, With St. John, the grounds of assurance are ethical, not emotional, objective, not subjective, plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. They are three, or rather they are a trinity, belief, righteousness, love. By his belief in Christ, by his keeping God's commandments, and his love to the brethren, a Christian man is recognized and recognizes himself as begotten of God. If you're not a Christian today, you may not have the ability to rightly perceive what it is that you believe about the triune God, the person and work of Jesus who is the Christ, and how it is that your life reflects that belief. But you can, by the work of the Holy Spirit, come to be made to see clearly. I hope that you will listen. I hope that you will be able to see maybe a little more clearly that your status before God is one who is not reconciled to him, for you have not yet come to his son, receiving the pardon for your sins. And this imputed righteousness that is not your own comes on the basis of grace given to sinners like you when you believe. So if you're not a Christian, 
I hope you listen. But the aim of this passage is for Christians. And so Christians, saint, I want you to consider these four lessons so that you might learn, whether it's right now or another time in your life where various circumstances come and you will ask, am I really a Christian? Here are four lessons. The first, John, from verses 15 into into verses 16, and it ties into verse 17. I'm going to summarize it this way. Christian, one of the reasons that you know that you are a Christian is because God hears your prayers with favor. God hears your prayers with favor. Now, in verse 15, this is where we see this declaration. It also ties into what he said in verses 13 and 14. And and, and it's a confidence, John says in verse 14. This is the confidence. That's that's John's word for assurance. This is a confidence to which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, in one way, we could say this is maybe to you or to me. This sounds like a kind of long winded way to say, Christian, when you go to God with requests, petitions. God hears them and he responds favorably to them. Now, at one level, that should alone be amazing. Why would God listen to you? Why would God care about me calling out to him, help? Because you're his child. He has begotten you. He is your father. In one sense, John has a way of relating the Christian to the triune God in such a, a paternal and familial way that it's, it's a little bit more warm. John can correct me if this is any way heretical than Paul. John's language is such as that they call him the apostle of love for a number of other reasons. But the manner in which he assures Christians is with the relational aspect that the Christian has with the triune God. And here he points to the place of prayer being received by your father in heaven, which he hears you with favor. Now, you may think like just. I'm not going to tell you what I pray for, but me and Daniel were driving over. Daniel is a single man. I have four children. He was working at a a family in our church's home. They have, I think, four children, and he was building a deck for them. And he he said uh, the mother would come out, and she would be saying, I love my children, I love my children, I love my children. (laughs) It's a Christian mantra. The Christian mother's. Say No, it's a, it's a petition. It's saying the truth so that you might live in conformity with the truth because your feelings are way off in some left field of, of disobedience, right? Like, you just consider your petitions. They probably aren't so high and mighty, are they? 
they, in one sense, are like when children come in their ignorance and their weakness and their foolishness, and they ask for help. How would a father who loves his children, who sees a genuine request from his son or his daughter, respond favorably? Christian, John is saying to us that we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know we have the request which we have asked from him. So first lesson to employ when you are wondering, am I a Christian? Is consider the place of prayer in your life before God. The nature of prayer is you are asking God to hear you and to take care of you, to tend to you. And he responds favorably to your requests. If you're not a Christian, God hears your prayers. He hears your cries. He does not respond to you like he does to his children. You need to understand that the favorable response of the Father in heaven is not an equal opportunity petition. It is unique in the way that he hears our prayers. For as John says here, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, in verses 16 and 17, he goes into a particular petition. Some of us need to make sure that we have our adults' Christian attire on as we consider what he tells us to pray for and then tells us what we don't have to pray for. But in verse 16, he tells us that one of the petitions that we should pray, and this is very consistent with what John has said throughout this letter, it has to do with our love for our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, and that is if we see a brother who is committing a sin not leading to death, Then verse 16 tells us, he shall ask, that is we, the ones who see the brother committing the sin not leading to death, we shall ask, and how does God respond to that prayer? That prayer of petition for a brother that is a Christian who is committing a sin that is not leading to death. God responds to that petition by giving life to those who commit sin. Now that also is pretty amazing. That when we see a fellow brother or sister committing sin, then we can go to God and we can ask God to act on behalf of this brother or sister who is committing sin. And God will effectively bring to bear the spiritual life that is in him or her and they will turn back. Why? Why? Because God hears your prayers with favor. You're his children. I probably need to say a little bit about the sin leading not to death. All right, That is to say, when Paul lists sins, we'll find a number of sins that he will list. And we often may think like, whoa, what happens if you commit this sin? The Roman Catholic Church calls a number of sins mortal sins, meaning if you commit these sins, then you will spiritually die. Thus, they are called mortal sins. John is not, in this sense, referring to a particular transgression that if you commit this sin, then you will surely eternally die. John is actually referring to the one who is committing the sin. 
If you are not a Christian and you commit sin, that sin leads to death. But John, I think, especially has in view here the sin of apostasy. That is to say, if you forsake the church and you forsake the gospel, then you have forsaken God. You are an apostate. And to commit sin as an apostate means your sin is unto death. There is no hope for the sin of the apostate. But what is the sin that does not lead to death? It is the sin of the Christian. Christian sin. John deals with this. He writes his letter in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Does the next verse go on to say, and if you do sin, sorry, all hope is lost on you. No. What does he say? He says, and if anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christian, when you sin, you are are instructed to consider who speaks on your behalf, who represents you to God, and what is his character quality. The one who represents you before the Father is Jesus Christ, and his character quality as your representative It's really not like yours, is it? It is not like mine. Unlike you and me, he is the righteous one. John goes on then to talk about he is the propitiation for our sins. That is, all of God's wrath for our sin has been quenched, satisfied, averted in Jesus Christ. This is why John is able to communicate to us very winsomely as we pray for a brother or sister who is committing sin, that God would turn him or her back. And we are able to have a confidence. God hears that prayer with favor, and God will turn that one who is committing a sin, not leading to death, he will turn him or her back. If you are in, Christian, a sin right now, You are devoted to your sin. You are committed to your sin. You are practicing your sin. You're not repenting from your sin. If your fellow brother or sister, and if you're married, I imagine it is much easier to see that. If you're a Christian, you should go and confess your sin to God first and foremost, but also to the appropriate circle of Christians in your life, and they should pray for you. And you should know God will hear them as he will hear me with favor, for I am his in Christ. Right? Now, all of this is explaining why is it that God hearing our prayers with favor is a way in which we are assured I'm actually a Christian. It's because that there is this ongoing ministry of our God to us in this present life with its ebbs and flows, the sort of waxing and waning of our faith's seemingly strength at one moment and weakness at another that will sustain us and keep us. Uh, Christian, God hears your prayers with favor. 
Second reason that real Christians should be assured that they are safe with God is that we do not continue in sin. Look at verse 18. Now, verse 17 tells us when we talk about a brother or a sister, as we're going to talk about here, a Christian committing sin, when we're going to talk about ourselves, when we have broken God's law, are we in any way saying that it is not evil? That somehow our sins are less sinful than, say, a non-Christian sins? No, we are not saying that. We know, verse 17, that all unrighteousness is sin. Christian, when you break God's law, when I break God's law, when you defame God's name, when I defame God's name, what is it? It is unrighteousness. But verse 18 says, we know that no one who has been born of God sins. I think the English Standard Version is a helpful translation of what is written in Greek here. It reads, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Both of the translations are accurately communicating to us what is written here by John, and that is he is describing the individual who is continuing in a pattern of unrepentant sin. To keep on sinning is to be, to put it in a particular transgression, it is to be a drunkard. To keep on sinning is to be an adulterer. To keep on sinning would to be continue to be devoted to your fornication. Do you see I can give individual transgressions? Continue to be a gossip. Continue to be a slanderer. Continue to be bitter. Continue to be unforgiving and wrathful and vengeful. Right? That's a continue a continuation of a pattern of unbroken sin. That is in contrast with, forgive me, I have just gossiped about you. Forgive me, I've just told someone something about you that cast you in a negative light. I've slandered you. Do you see the difference between the two? One is a pattern of continual sin. The other is a sin which then is ceased. It is stopped. It is broken. And here is what then happens. That rather than, let's just take the thief. If you are a thief and you're going to not continue in your sin of stealing, then you will stop. Stop stealing. But then you, will, you need to work instead. With your hands, so that you may actually possess something that you have earned with the work of your hands, so that you might give to one who is in need. That's what Paul prescribes for thieves. That is the ceasing of sin, the turning from sin, and the particular act of obedience of replacing that sin with doing the thing that actually pleases God. That is not what John is describing here. John is describing the one who is continuing in sin, verse 18. And John is saying, we know that no one who has been born of God continues in sin. 
Christian, this should be true of you. This should be true of you. Now, we have to paint here with sort of incomplete brushstrokes. It will happen in the future that God will finish the work that he has begun in us, and the painting, in one sense, will be completed. But right now, there is a true, a real painting of Christ in us, though it is not yet completed. And the present form of the true picture that God has started is one of repentance from sin. It is a picture that shows forth that God has broken the power of sin in our life. And we can, some of us, can look back at our lives and say, if you would have known me, the, the fellow that we, that we just uh, saw married last night, if you would have known this, this brother three years ago, an officer in the Marine Corps, engaging in things that we cannot even publicly talk about, you probably would not imagine him as a Christian man taking a Christian woman to be his wife last night with 400-year-old vows that Thomas Cranmer wrote. And if we parachuted into his life, just like if we parachuted into yours or to mine, before we had been born of God, it would be a painting of continuing in sin. And maybe your sins are different than my sins, but we would be painting the same picture. There has been in us, Christian, a new picture that has started, and it is a picture of those who are born of God where we do not continue in sin. Christian, you should look at your life. You should look at your life. You should look at how you behave. You should look at how you talk. You should look at how you live. You should look at what you do with your time, what you do with your money. In this sense, we're talking about your whole life, and you, can, should, you should consider, is this in conformity to the moral demands of my God? If you are not in conformity with those demands, then you should turn away. You should repent, and you should take up obedience in those areas. And that would be the testimony. That you've been born of God. You're picking up obedience. You have ceased from sin. Now, we again need to ask the question, why? Like, why do Christians do that? Are they just like strong people constitutionally? They're just really good at pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? No. I imagine you know one another here. And you're able to say, no, they're not. Not at all. And they know me, and I'm not either. Why is it that we actually, as those who have been begotten of God, why are we not continuing in sin? The next clause in verse 18 tells us. But he, I'm reading from the LSB, if you're reading from the New American Standard, the New King James, but unfortunately not the ESV, you don't have the capital H that begins he there. So you have to decide who is this referring to. But if you're reading and the translators capitalize the H, you know it is referring to God, one of the persons within the Godhead, and and it's capital H. But he, and now he describes him, who was begotten of God. John only refers to that to be the Son of God. 
the eternally begotten Son of God. That is the He. And what does He do? Keeps Him. Lowercase h. See, the reason that we do not continue in sin is not because of us. The reason that we do not continue in sin is because the eternally begotten Son of God keeps us. This is great news. Christian, I think most of you are able to say that the fight with sin is far harder than you might have imagined it to be when you first became a Christian. I have to be quite honest. I really thought by the age of 45 that uh, some sins would be so done and dusted that they would not raise their head at all in any form of temptation, and it is not true. The reason that it is not true is because I am still, by nature, sinful. Indwelling sin is a principle operating with me, and Christian, it operates within you too. That's why you must kill it. But the reason that we will not continue in it is because Jesus, the Son of God, keeps us. Persevering faith is really the work of the triune God in us. To be kept by him as we ourselves keep us, keep ourselves from sin. Jesus Christ is the one who assures us that we are his because Jesus is keeping us from returning to the life that used to govern our actions. John gives this. This is the last clause. The evil one does not touch him. Right? This is really helpful. If you come from a background such as like maybe a Pentecostal background or certain charismatic backgrounds, and you believe that the devil can somehow gain some influence or power over you or make you think certain things or do certain things, you are absolutely wrong. If you are a Christian, you have been delivered from this world and the one who rules this world, that is the evil one, the devil himself, such that on one hand, no sin that you or I do as Christians can ever be said, well, the devil made me do it. He didn't, if you're a Christian. Now, even if you're not a Christian, he might have in one sense been working with you, but you still joined him. You are in his confederate force, but not the Christian, not you, saint. You are one who has been delivered from the evil one. And this is our, in verse 19, it develops more. This bleeds over into our third reason that we know as Christians that we're saved. We're delivered from this world. Verse 19 reads, we know that we are of God. Now, when you read that in John, you're now going, okay, bring the answer. I want to know why I am of God, why I am born of God. Please tell me. This is the answer. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what did he just say about the one who is kept by the begotten Son of God, the evil one does not touch him. So John makes a contrast between the last clause of verse 18, which is true of Christians, and what he says of verse 19 about those who lie in the power of the evil one. We are not them. 
We know that we have been born of God. We know that we are God's children. We know that we are saved because we know where our membership does not lie. It does not lie in this world. It does not lie in sort of the course of this present world that is opposed to God and disobeys God and does not honor God, does not fear Him nor love Him. We do not have membership in that world. We have been delivered from, in one sense, the one that Paul calls the prince of that world. The ultimate ruler of this world is the one that Jesus has fully and definitively delivered us from. So that that realm does not possess us and we are not loyal to it. This is one thing that's been really helpful, I hope, for you in the last two years is that Athanasius' little slogan, Contra Mundum, is in one sense been refreshed as our marching orders. Christian, if you think the world is going to accept you, one, you've had your head in a hole for two years, and two, you haven't read your Bible. You're not even of this present world. And that is a marker that assures you I'm born of God. I'm one of his children. Praise God they hate me. Not because you're a jerk, right? If they're a jerk and you hate and they hate you, it's just because you're a jerk. It's not because you're born of God. But if they hate you because you're born of God, that you have been delivered from the evil one, then you actually you're, you just give God thanks. Thank you that I am your child. The power that once ruled us, the realm and once we once pledged our loyalty to, it no longer has traction on these new hearts that have been given to us. This is the third reason that we know that we're Christians. Here's the last one. It's we, we know the truth. We know the truth. Verse 20 reads, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, we do not have time to sort of unpack, in one sense, John's Russian doll terms that he brings in this, uh, in this sort of concluding doctrinal verse of this letter But what John is telling his original audience and what the Holy Spirit tells us as we read verse 20 is that all that Jesus Christ is for us, we know, we believe the truth about Christ, that he is the eternally begotten Son of God, that he is the one in whom eternal life is and has been granted to us. And if you have the Son, the only thing that you can have is eternal life. And when you have the Son, you know who He is. Thus you distinguish Him from who He is not. The problem that is now made manifest with apostates is they reject Him. They deny the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. 
and their departure from the gospel and their departure from the church reveals that they, in fact, they never knew him. And they never had the eternal life that is in him. If you're a Christian, in one sense, the reason that you know the truth about God, the truth about the person and work of the Son of God, is not because you went to John's Membership Matters class, which you should go to. It is because God made you to know. And he brought you to know. So that by believing, Augustine says, I know. This is the testimony that God is working in us so that when we look at what do you believe, we are not just doing an academic exercises of theological true-false questions. We are actually looking at the testimony of the work of the triune God in us such that we are able to identify, yes, I have the Son of God who is fully God and fully man, propitiated all of my sins, stands as the righteous one for me before the Father, and in whom is eternal life. Our ability to hold fast to the doctrinal truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ is an area of assurance. Indeed, the message of reconciliation to God through his son, Jesus Christ, a message that is proclaimed by foolish and simple preachers, by parents communicating across kitchen tables, by teachers in schoolrooms just offering to sinners in their class reconciliation to God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When one comes to know that, They are coming to know in one sense the grounds of assurance that will hold them the entire course of their life on earth and usher them complete into Christ's presence. Knowing the truth, Christian, is this fourth reason that you know that you are saved. So John concludes, verse 21, what do you do? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. At this point, you're thinking like, huh, that's a strange pivot. I really didn't think I would possibly, you know, put a little Buddha doll in a corner of my house or, you know, bow down to some pagan statue. That's not the idol he has in mind. I think you probably know that an idol is anything that is formed or placed in the position that only God should have. And what apostates do is they put their false idea of who God is, and they put it in a place that only God should have in the gospel of Christ. And they relate to a false gospel as if it is the true gospel. And they think that they have a relationship with the true God when in fact they have nothing but an idol. That's what apostasy is. Now we could look at various sort of Christian developed uh, sects of apostasy, such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. But I think you need to be on guard against other idols. There are 
emerging secular idols that are parading themselves as so-called Christian ideas. I would say that the gospel of self-love and self-care is an idol that you need to guard yourself from. I would say that therapeutic gospels are in one sense idols that apostates pawn that Christians must guard themselves from. I would say the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is an idol that John is commanding us as God's little children to guard ourselves from. These kind of idols that in one sense aim from the efforts of the evil one to lead us astray. Christian, you know that the truth is in the Son of God because you have believed the gospel. You are able to see that indeed you have been delivered from the evil one and you're not a part of this world. You know that you do not continue in sin because the Son of God keeps you. You know when God hears you pray, he responds favorably. This is why you you know as imperfect as you are, as prone to sin and wander as we are, you're saved. But if you have questions about this, I imagine John could answer, but I'll, I'll hang up uh, up here or Ben can stand up. I don't know what y'all do, to be honest, but uh, conversation might be appropriate to have with your pastors. And so I'd encourage you to do that in some way. John? Thanks for giving me the opportunity to bring God's word to bear. Uh, I forgot the bulletin. Do we pray and Ray leads us? All right. Dear God, pray that you would help us to see that what you've done for us in Christ is keeping us right now. Help us to see the great assurance that we have that is founded upon who you are. Help us to also see that there are idols. Help us to guard ourselves from them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.